Hello and welcome to this episode of the SCTS Education Podcast, An Extra Perspective. This is a series of podcasts where we explore some of the chapters in the Perspectives in Cardiothoracic Surgery book, Volume 4, published as part of the SCTS University. In this episode, I'm speaking to Professor Torsten Dunst, who is the Chairman of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Jena University Hospital in Germany. We are discussing uh, this chapter in the book, which is the durability of tissue valves in the aortic position. Here we talk about the most recent classification systems used to evaluate bioprosthetic valve dysfunction and its importance as transcatheter valve interventions continue to develop. very much for joining me um, to discuss uh, key topics in the chapter uh, and the chapter that we're talking about is um, the durability of tissue valves in the aortic position. How do we first of all discuss how we classify bioprosthetic valve dysfunction? And what is the importance of having specific guidelines around structural valve deterioration? In general, um, there is a lot of discussion and then there's a lot of, uh, at times, confusion uh, regarding this issue. Um, and since the uh, transcatheter valves are now uh, mainly uh, performed by cardiologists and uh, people basically now say that the surgeons um, do not really know their long-term durability and they have not defined their long-term outcomes. If you look at it from a um, historical perspective, it's very clear because the um, cardiology has always been the diagnostic um, discipline and as soon as something invasive was necessary, the surgeon was called. Mm. And with the advent of interventions in general, that is shifting. In addition, there was no true alternative. There are several surgical valves that have failed because of uh, limited long-term durability. And so it is, uh, you, you cannot expect that you will find anything different uh, with uh, the new transcatheter valves. There mm. may be those that will last, and then there may be those that will fail. Mm. And um, so you, the only thing you have nowadays is you have to p- perform a true follow-up on those. And now since this is a true alternative, which is less invasive, and then uh, therefore also more desirable for the patient, um, it's clear that all of a sudden you need to have clear definitions mm. on how you define durability, how do you define um, valve function. And um, so there's this bioprosthetic uh, valve dysfunction scheme and a, a new classification that uh, different, um, different societies and groups have come up with. And um, we have uh, quoted in our article one that is current, where bioprosthetic valve dysfunction is uh, categorized into four different types, mm. and um, that's now our figure one in the in in the uh, article. Mm. Those uh, definitions for structural valve deterioration has been actually already published by surgeons in 1999. The group of Richard Weisel and others have done this in, in already at the end of the last millennium. So, um, you know, the, uh, the the only problem is that not everybody who presented their data uh, actually adhered to those recommendations. Traditionally, a lot of surgeons have then published their results, freedom from structural valve deterioration, and in true life, it was freedom from reoperation. So whether the valve was still functioning okay or not, that was not clear every time. And um, having these new definitions is certainly something that we can uh, use now 
and uh, but that ob- obviously is something that we have to follow prospectively. So it is a very important aspect of uh, uh, valve treatment nowadays is with tissue valves, whether they may be um, surgically implanted or uh, through a catheter. Um, it is very important to follow each of those valves with respect to their durability long term. One of the things that you talk about is the different things that contribute to durability with regards to both factors of the valve factors of the patient and also hemodynamic factors after implantation, the size of the valve, for example. Right. Um, okay, so hemodynamic, that's also the, the general notion is that there are some studies that support the, uh, the idea that a smaller valve um, has limited durability. So if, um, if you implant a size 19 or 21, uh, the durability is not as good as a, if you implant the same valve at sizes 25 to 27. Mm. So um, the, uh, the idea, um, the observation is there, whether that is truly a pathomechanistic difference or whether it's just um, physical difference, that's not clear. So what, what do I mean by that? Um, if, if you have a valve that has uh, a 19 millimeter valve or a 21, those are the smallest ones we have. Um, they may have an actual opening of the valve of maybe just over one centimeter square. So we define severe stenosis um, as, as an effective orifice area of one centimeter square or below, and a gradient of uh, above 40 millimeters of mercury, a uh, mean gradient, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a small valve and you are, in terms of dimensions, much closer to those uh, values already, and the smaller valves also start with the higher gradient, if the slightest change in, let's say, structural valve deterioration hits the, the cusps and uh, they don't move as much as they did before, all of a sudden um, you hit your qualification mark much quicker as if you had a larger valve. Mm. Okay? So the, um, it, it may not be that the smaller valves are um, faster in, in their degeneration process. It may just be that the smaller valves... Uh, may sew up earlier because they're closer to the uh, relevant uh, dimensions that we need in order to generate a a severe stenosis. And I guess that is another good reason to not just go on echo criteria for sort of understanding how degenerated a valve is going to be and actually go on clinical criteria and symptoms primarily. Yes and no. The question is how far degenerated is the valve? Then it's yes, then start with differences in gradient from the first measurement. But if you look at the relevant stenosis that you have, that's relevant for the patient, then it doesn't matter uh, Mm. whether you have minor or major changes, uh, structural changes to the valve. If if the valve in there creates a severe stenosis, you need to act. And that's why implanting a large valve at the beginning is key to surgical practice. Mm -hmm. I have published on this many times. Mm -hmm. We've published uh, techniques of replica sizing. We have published on the dimensions of uh, valves. Uh, They have different outer dimensions and that the actual sizing of the companies is all confusing Mm. and uh, different. Mm. You need the outer diameter for the surgeon because he needs to implant that valve into the aortic root. And then you need the opening of the valve. That's important for the patient because that's where the blood has to go through. But those numbers you you cannot find anywhere on on the labels. 
and a 23 valve doesn't mean that it's 23 millimeter in outer diameter. It may mean that the inner diameter is 23 millimeters, but you don't know how much the cusps actually open above it. And so there's a lot of confusion in terms of uh, valve sizing and valve size nomenclature. If you see how, for instance, the hemodynamics have improved uh, in trials where surgical aortic valve replacement was compared to transcatheter valves, uh, take the Notion trial, where a significant amount of uh, the larger, uh, almost half of patients received a 19 or 21 valve surgically, Mm. and the smallest core valve that was implanted was a number 23. That there are differences in pressure gradients. Mm-hmm. And then take the partner three trial now, where mm-hmm. hemodynamics uh, actually appear to be even better with surgery, mm-hmm. or, 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 or similar at least. Mm-hmm. So the differences are gone because surgeons now focus on implanting larger valves. That's an effect of transcatheter valves, and that's a good effect. Yes. So you know, we need to implant the largest valve possible. One of the things I thought was very interesting was the issue with aging and how this con- uh, contributes to structural valve deterioration and valve calcification. We know that as people get older, the valve will degenerate at a slower rate, even uh, when you take into account sort of natural mortality that will happen in an older age group. And uh, one of the things that caught my eye was the effects of immunity on this and how much is to do with age and decline in immunity. And I mean, all those points are good points, mm-hmm. um, are uh, relevant points for discussion. Uh, there, is no, there are no data on any of these uh, hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing we know is that if you implant a valve um, in a 70-year-old or in a 40-year-old, um, the 70-year-old will have a statistically a longer durability of his valve than the 40-year-old. Mm. And um, that's paradoxical. We would need it the other way around. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. And there are different issues, uh, immunity, calcium metabolism, um, uh, calcification processes that may have to do with uh, why does the young person come with an aortic stenosis early. There may be other processes going on. So there are many possible explanations and possible considerations, none of them have been uh, proven. So that's all speculation. And um, so eventually you end up with the fact that um, you have a certain durability for a certain valve uh, at a certain age. Mm -hmm. And that's the information that we have, roughly. And um, that's the information that has to be given to the patient. One of the things about the categorization that's been sort of created by the newer guidelines is that they've defined a few different types of bioprosthetic valve dysfunction. So we've talked about structural valve deterioration um, and also non-structural valve deterioration. For example, patient prosthesis mismatch and paravalvular leaks, both of which they classify as irreversible causes of bioprosthetic valve dysfunction. And then there's two other categories that they've talked about, thrombosis and endocarditis, and that these are potentially reversible causes up until the point that they cause structural problems themselves. Um, Right. One of the things that uh, you've touched on as well in the chapter is about TAVI valves. And although the structural valve deterioration, yes, we can assess that in the same way that we do for the the surgically implanted valves, that the aspect of crimping um, is thought to maybe cause a bit more valve thrombosis as well. The issue of thrombosis here 
um, has been one that has only appeared in, in, in daily practice and in real life through the transcatheter valves. Mm-hmm. Um, so before, um, valve thrombosis uh, was at least in numbers irrelevant. There were the occasional valve that uh, was had to be reoperated for um, valve dysfunction, mm-hmm. and uh, then it turned out to be a thrombosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know now that those percentages, they can happen at any time. They happen at the mean uh, after like three years mm-hmm. in, in surgical patients. Uh, they happen um, in, in transcatheter valves much earlier, but also the percentage in surgical uh, series is, a rough, is roughly around 3%. So that's uh, a small number. Mm-hmm. Um, the number in, um, in transcatheter valves is always two-digit, and they have uh, defined two names for it, um, uh, hypoattenuated leaflet motions, that's HALM, RELM, uh, uh, HAM and stuff like that. So the um, those uh, names only appeared with the advent of the transcatheter valves because these valves have a four times higher, on average, uh, rate of thrombosis. And with the sort of so, abnormal leaflet motion, is that because they've sort of been ballooned and or they've not fully expanded? Well, the reason why that is is not fully clear. Mm. It may have to do with the fact that these valves, um, you know the cardiologists and those who developed the transcatheter valves, they came obviously from the stenting field. Mm. And if you come from coronary stenting, um, you put a stent and then you have to, they have learned this, you have to um, uh, inhibit platelet function. So Mm -hmm. they have a dual platelet inhibition, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so that that was the initial um, strategy to treat patients with TAVI with dual platelet inhibition. Yeah. And um, so now what's tested currently is in, in several trials is whether they should go with uh, uh, at least a temporary phase of uh, oral anticoagulation. Mm. And so that may have to do with the fact that uh, oral anticoagulation may be required because, uh, I mean, it's, it's a guideline recommendation that you anticoagulate a bioprosthetic valve uh, surgically implanted for three months. Yes, yeah. There's... There is actually evidence that that may may not be necessary, but at least that's guideline recommendation. Yeah. And um, then if you look at, so in, in, in surgically implanted valves, um, we anticoagulate patients or we leave it, but the, in, the incidence of thrombosis usually happen a few years later, mm-hmm. at least the peak of it. Mm-hmm. So in, in the transcatheter valve, the other reason may be that the, um, the crimping process and there's uh, histological images for it. They are pretty impressive. They show how the collagen fibers and, and connective tissue that makes the cusps, how that is, through the crimping process, uh, broken in several pieces. So you have a lot of stru- uh, breaks in the um, histological structure of the cusps. And uh, those minor breaks may cause little ridges in the cusps that may... Uh, the trigger a thrombotic event mm. so yeah, that you have a site for thrombosis there and that mm. may actually be that's one um, possible pathomechanism for the higher rate of thrombosis and then of course that may be or maybe not treated with anticoagulation successfully the bottom line is that if you have a thrombosis and you treat it with anticoagulation uh, you're successful in alleviating the problem in 80% of the cases mm. so 
that's also a good information for the surgeon because uh, maybe those patients that were had that were uh, reoperated in earlier times, and then it turns out that it was a thrombosis, they may have actually had a chance with anticoagulation to um, be treated conservatively, and, they, and, um, and that's something new for us, and um, that is something that we, of course, can now use for patient care. If somebody comes with a surgical valve that has a, where there's a suspicion for a thrombosis, then you can anticoagulate them for six weeks or three months, and then if, um, if it's still there, then you have your reason for reoperation. Every new valve out there has to stand the test of time with respect to durability. Mm. I think the importance is for us surgeons and also for the um, involved cardiologists to know the data and to um, uh, recommend to patients what is already known and what is not known. Yeah. And then uh, patients can usually make a decision. Well, thank you very, very much for talking to me. And thank you very much for listening to this episode of the SCTS Education Podcast. I very much hope that you've enjoyed it, but we're very keen to have your feedback here. So if you can please rate and review this episode, very much appreciate it. And hopefully see you next time.